You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. Personally, I couldn't be more excited to be in the Gospel of Luke for 16 months with y'all. We are taking a slow, long look through every chapter of the book of Luke because I want you to see Jesus in all of his glory week after week after week. There's nothing better. All of God's word is valuable, profitable, and good, but there is something beautiful to be in the text about Jesus himself, to get to hear from Jesus himself, to see Jesus live and work each week. And my goal for the series, for our church, for me, is the same goal as the Gospel of Luke, that Gospel of Luke says this in the very first verses. This is what Luke tells his readers. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They use the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples, having carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write an accurate account for you. That's what the gospel of Luke is. He's saying, we all know these things about Jesus. People are dying for Jesus, living for Jesus, having their life transformed by Jesus. And I want you to have an accurate summary, an account of what actually happened. Most honorable Theophilus. Now, Theophilus could be a person. His name means Theo, God, Phyllis, lover. Or it could mean just anyone who wants to love God or anyone who does love God. Luke's prepared a summary. And so you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Luke wants you to be certain. Luke wants certainty to grow in your faith. Because a lot of times we say things like, hey, we have a blind faith. And that's just not biblical. The Bible would teach you have an informed faith, informed by historical facts, lived history of the Bible. There's not a single thing in the Bible that's been disproved by archaeology ever. Think about that. We got a Bible touching all sorts of civilizations for well over 10,000 years of recorded history. None of it's been disproven. In fact, archaeology continues to confirm it time after time after time. Within the past 50 years, they found a stone bearing Pontius Pilate's name and the dates of his reign that fit with Jesus's life. All these things get backed up by archaeology over time. Your faith is an informed one, and Luke wants you to be certain. Luke wants you to be certain in another way that you would look at God's work in your own life and the people around you and say, I have experienced God. I've seen evidence that the gospel does work in life. Further, I want your faith to be certain that as you read God's word, you would see it self-validating or self tells us it's true because as you live your life, you get begin to see God's word is true. His take on things is kind of how it goes. My take on think is takes on things is the thing that needs to change, not God's. We may disagree, but over time, the Bible is always true because God never lies. And Luke is such a unique gospel because he's the only non-Jewish guy to write in the whole Bible. For the vast majority of you, he's one of us. Came from outside the Jewish faith, not ethnically Jewish. He was the outsider, who then becomes an insider, a doctor, a physician. 
whose life gets swept up by the gospel so much that he's joining Paul on missionary journeys and doing adventures with this guy and willing to, live, to risk life and limb because even though he was an outsider, now he's an insider. And I want you to notice throughout his gospel, even in the passage today, people who might be on the outside are pulled in by Jesus. People who seem far are pulled in. The women throughout Luke are the focus. They get brought in. The ethnic outsider, the non-Jewish person is brought in. The Roman soldiers suddenly have a focus point. Everyone you think might get left out of the story. Instead, Luke highlights how Jesus is bringing them in to the very middle of the story. And Jesus says that our faith should be childlike, not because what we believe is a myth, but instead that we would see our need and our littleness and we would embrace God and his big loving arms that salvation is for us. Kids are needy. If, if that's foreign to you, you can borrow one of mine for a day. You can take a turn in city kids. But neediness with God isn't a problem. It's actually the solution to a God who generously wants to connect with you, love you, and change you from the inside out. So my hope is that you will grow in certainty of what you believe. And I know for some of us in this room, that will mean salvation. That suddenly the gospel becomes clear that Jesus is God and man, that he died for me. And whether you grew up in church your whole life or whatever, whatever the story is or never been to church. For some of us, that will mean salvation as we look at a Jesus who's the only Savior and only Lord of all. For others, this certainty will mean increasing and deepening your trust in Jesus. And I pray that our faith will abound as we fall in love with Jesus. Please come to church every Sunday looking to fall in love with Jesus, and you will not be disappointed in the gospel of Luke. And to that end, we're going to drop right into Luke 3. Luke 1 and 2, we hit almost every Advent, and we will this Advent in December. It's a story of Jesus's birth and growing up. But we're going to drop into Luke 3, where we meet Jesus as an adult. And Luke does it in such a clever way. Look at verse, verse 1. It says, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetriarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, another tetriarch, licenses another tetriarch. And during the priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And Tiberius Caesar doesn't mean a lot to us, but back then, this was the king, the emperor of the Roman Empire. And that would be as big as all of Europe, North Africa, and the near Middle East all lived and died under the power of the Roman Empire. It's the 15th year of Tiberius Caesar's reign, which means it's 29 AD. Jesus is likely born in 4 BC. So when we meet Jesus at the end of this passage, he's a 33-year-old man. Pontius Pilate is the Roman governor of this kind of Judea area. It's confirmed by ancient writings outside the Bible. It's confirmed in archaeology. It's confirmed in the story of Scripture. He's going to play a main role by the end. And these tetriarchs, it's a word we will never use and never really used in our culture, but it means four rulers of the area because the Romans didn't want to directly rule the people. They knew that would cause lots of friction. We'll even see it in the Bible. So they would point these little puppet rulers from among the people to kind of carry out their dirty work. 
And finally, it mentions Annas and Caiaphas. And these are the high priests of the big Jerusalem temple. Only plot twists, they're appointed by the Romans. They're not this organic leadership arising from among the Jews, but they're actually puppets too. And the thing that we see in history is all these people, Pontius, Tiberius, the Tetrarchs, Annas and Caiaphas, they're all known for being corrupt. They're all known for being violent, violent rulers who all say their violence is for peace, y'all. It's for your good. It's peace. But they practice violence over and over. And what Luke is cleverly doing is saying, here's all the people, all the people the world's paying attention to. Here's all the people where the, where the world says the action is. Here's where the president is. Here's where the governors are. Here's where the religious authorities are. But what God's actually doing is out in the wilderness because the actual king of the world is coming. The actual prince of peace in Jesus is actually here and he doesn't have a sword at all. He doesn't rule by violence in any way and it is through Jesus that he will change the world. Not all these people who think they're so important. And we learn Jesus's cousin, John the Baptist, he's not in the temple. His dad is a priest, but he's not hanging out in the temple. He's not hanging out with priestly folks. Instead, John the Baptist is out in the wilderness. And apparently he's been out in the wilderness like a while, like a long while. He is a man of the woods. And John the Baptist, when he is out in the wilderness, the Jewish ear is hearing, "Uh uh-oh, the wilderness, the Old Testament. The wilderness is where we got the law from Sinai. The wilderness is a place of formation between God and his people. Think David on the run. Think Israel in the desert. The wilderness is also a place of judgment. That Israel was disciplined and had to wander for 40 years in the wilderness. And the Gospel of Matthew's depiction of John the Baptist is so helpful here. Look with me. It says, now John wore a garment of camel's hair. Not fine camel's hair. This is like rough and scratchy. A leather belt around his waist. And his food was locusts, i.e. grasshoppers, and wild honey. And then Jerusalem, the biggest city in the area, and all of Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going to him. Our guy John is, I imagine him in like a camel hair vest, and he's wearing it like Elijah did, uh, the prophet of the Old Testament. He's kind of coming into that ministry of him. And some of y'all I know are thinking this man is a little bit gross. He's eating grasshoppers breakfast lunch and dinner, and that sounds very different to our culture, but I know others of y'all are more than a little jealous because this guy is a granola all-star. If you want to live eating clean, non-GMO, off the grid, super local, like grab it in your hand local. John the Baptist is doing that. His protein is on lock little all-natural honey on the side. It is all the good stuff. His skin is probably glowing. He feels amazing, no processed foods, and um, he's doing great. 
And John the Baptist is probably not this big burly guy. He's always like a big guy in every children's book I ever pull open. John the Baptist, I think because he preaches repentance, he's always gigantic. But I imagine John the Baptist, man, he's working by the river. He's baptizing left, he's baptizing right. He is probably looking good. He's tan, he's out in the sun all day. And he is preaching, preaching in a way that has made him the most famous man in Israel with absolutely no title. People have left the cities to come see him. People have left their towns to come hear the message. People are coming to John the Baptist. It is not a calm church service, but more like a music festival because people have to camp out to come and be with them. They're walking or on camels or on horses. It is a long journey to see what is happening out by the Jordan River. And it's a man who only has one message. He's a one-note band. He's a one-hit wonder. He has one big message. It says this in verse three, the word of God came to John, kind of that language of a prophet. The word of God is here in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 18 will simply say he's preaching the gospel to all people. But John explains his message by quoting Isaiah 40. Look what it says. It says, as is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, written about 500 years before this scene, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Everybody's flocking to John, but John's actually pointing to someone else. Everyone's coming to John. He's the most famous man maybe in Israel now. Stuff that even the political movers and shakers are jealous of him will find out. And all John's doing is saying, there's someone coming. The Messiah is coming. The Lord himself is coming. He even knows it's Jesus. This guy is coming. Jesus has been, or John's been pointing to Jesus his whole life. Even when baby Jesus and baby John were still in their mother's wombs, they met each other, Elizabeth and Mary, and John the Baptist leaps for joy in Elizabeth's womb, knowing that Jesus is present in the other womb. He's been pointing to Jesus his whole life. And he's been waiting for the day when adult Jesus will show up as a savior of the world out here in the wilderness. And John's message has been for all people of all walks of life. And Isaiah tells it in this beautiful metaphor, lowly people, the symbolic lowly people of the valley, the downtrodden, they can lift up their head because Jesus is coming. The high and mighty, the prideful people, the religious people, the people that that really take a lot of pride in everything they know and have nothing to learn and kind of are above it all. He says, those mountains got to be laid low because Jesus is coming. And those entrapped in sin, in love with sin, the crooked, they got to repent. They got to see their need for Jesus. They got to see this world is not worth living for. Why? Because the true king is on his way. In fact, he's even here. John preaches repentance so that all flesh will see Jesus, so that people won't miss the salvation of God. If you want to miss Jesus, act like you don't have any sin. 
When you see your need for Jesus, suddenly the Savior becomes picture perfect. Jesus is only attractive if you have a need for him. If you think you're above him, if you think you're below him, you're going to miss him. You need Jesus. I need Jesus Christ. John's a one-message guy that everyone must turn from their sin and see their need for a Savior because he's coming. And he says something unique, that we should be baptized, symbolically, literally washed clean of sin, risen out of the water to await for the Savior of the world. And that's humbling stuff, really humbling stuff, because baptism wasn't part of the Jewish faith for these ethnic Jews. For the people who grew up Jewish, they weren't going to ever get baptized. That's, that's like not a thing. The people who needed a baptism, according to the Jewish tradition, were the Gentiles, the ethnic other. That was part of their process of moving from being a Greek or a Scythian or a Persian to become a faithful Jew was eventually baptism in the process. They're called proselytes, people who have converted religions. And here John is, a Jewish man, saying, hey, for you to be ready for this Savior, not just of the Jewish people, but of the whole world, you need to be baptized too. And it blew their minds. Look at this. said. People are drawn to him. In verse 8, they push back. It says, and do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. John's saying that's not going to be enough, guys. You can be ethnically Jewish and miss the Savior. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Nobody's counted out. This is going to be for all ethnicities. This is going to be for all people. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John tells them the truth. It doesn't matter who your family is. It doesn't matter what kind of upbringing you had or what kind of church life you once had. It doesn't matter your ethnic or national background. None of your works are going to save you. Instead, it's going to be expressing your great need for God's salvation that's going to make you accept and love this Jesus who's a Savior. He's not a mascot. He's a Savior. Everyone must repent and trust the Savior to come. And part of John's message is acts at the tree stuff that if your life isn't bearing spiritual fruit now, which is AKA showing a love for God, expressed in worship and obedience to God's word, a growing of character, then you should have no confidence in your faith. These people had confidence say, hey, I'm ethnically Jewish. Hey, I'm a moral guy. Hey, I'm a good person, blah, 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 blah. And John Baptist says, yeah, none of that matters. And spiritual fruit doesn't cause you to be saved, but spiritual fruit is evidence of God's work in your life. And so if there's not good fruit on the tree, You should be deeply worried because now with Jesus coming, no longer will a dead spirituality or a casual spirituality work with Jesus. Jesus is here to transform, to transform us from dead people to alive spiritually. Going through the motions doesn't work. Going through the motions, he's going to get into it here with the religious in a second, doesn't work with Jesus. To turn and believe. And John speaks these different groups and he tells the religious that they're vipers, that they're snakes, to keep going through the motions of faith without actually repenting of sin and trusting God 
That's the way of the snake. And there's a prophetic hint here. Jesus in Genesis 3.15 is prophesied at the fall in the Garden of Eden. He was prophesied that one day there'd be one born of Eve, born of a woman, who's going to come crush the snake. Do it at the terrible cost of being struck on his heel, that he would die too in the process. And John's saying the snake crusher's here. And for the religious folks who put a lot of faith in their religious practices, but actually are going through the motions at a heart level. John's calling them snakes, calling them demonic, that they're not fooling God at all. Instead, they're siding with the devil, no matter how religious they seem. Jesus is here, and religion without Jesus isn't just wrong, but demonic. The high and mighty must humble themselves to see Jesus. It says the lowly must repent and by faith share the little they have, even a tunic or clothing or food. Everyone needs Jesus, whether you're riding high or riding low. It might be easier to see him when you're riding low, but you too need Jesus no matter what. And look what the crooked are told. The tax collectors were Jewish men who went to work for the occupying Romans. So most Jewish people considered them traitors. Wait a minute, you're, you're working for the occupiers? You're on the payroll of the occupiers? Are you kidding me? Look what he tells them, verse 12. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. They saw their need. They said, oh, oh gosh, everyone hates me anyways. Man, th this is very compelling. I want forgiveness. Teacher, what shall we do next? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. And soldiers asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not exhort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. Be content with your wages. It's profound. John the Baptist doesn't tell the crooked tax collectors to leave their job working for the Romans, but rather tells them to do their job fairly, to do it with justice. Jesus is completely uninterested in nationalism, whether Jewish or otherwise. Jesus is interested in peace and justice for all people, regardless of the political changes through the centuries. Likewise, the Roman soldiers, the ancient police in this population, they were told no more extortion, no more threatening, no more brutality. Instead, do your job with contentment instead of driven by greed or hate. Because remember, these foreign soldiers were foreigners. They were from all over Europe and North Africa and the near Middle East. And hate probably lived in their veins as they were far from their homes and easy to be a brutal police force. The gospel isn't just spiritual, it's transformational, and it speaks to every area of our life. But it also means no one is too lost. No one is too far away. These people who were the oppressors of the general populace are invited in and say, Jesus is for you too. Come repent and be healed just like everybody else. And folks were so excited about John the Baptist that John the Baptist must constantly clarify his ministry. Look how John the Baptist kind of cleans it all up for him in verse 15. The people were in expectation. You're at the biggest religious music festival of your life. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. I mean, he's a big deal. Maybe he's kind of talking about himself in third person here. And John answered them all saying, 
I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Back then, religious teachers, rabbis would just kind of roll around and they would have disciples, people who followed him. Jesus didn't just like make that pattern up. That was something in their culture. And the rabbi could ask a disciple to do just about any task for him, whether important or menial. But the one task they weren't allowed to do was to unstrap the sandal of another man. It was considered way too low. Why? Because their streets, they didn't have trash pickup. So feces, urine, trash, garbage, decay was in the streets. So what was on your sandal or what was on your foot was disgusting. And they had kind of said, hey, no man should ask another man to do that. And John the Baptist says, hey, me compared to Jesus, I untie his sandals. As big of a deal as you think I am, Jesus is that much bigger of a deal that I would happily untie Jesus's sandals. That our ministries are different. Mine just points to his. Look what it says. He, I will, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. This is Jesus. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with an unquenchable fire. John's ministry is to point to Jesus because the gospel is all about Jesus who baptizes not with water, but by the Holy Spirit and fire. And you might ask, well, what does that mean? That, that feels kind of vague and intense. Well, the Holy Spirit and fire in this verse kind of depends on your response to the gospel. For those who embrace Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes, we're baptized with him and we're given the Holy Spirit. So it's this renewal in our heart and our life. It's part of salvation. In the fire of God is his love for us, purifying us like gold or silver is purified. But for those who reject Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is convicting them throughout life, and they reject him over and over and over, one day the fire is as John describes, that it's a part of eternal punishment before a holy God. Because our sins are no light thing before God. He's perfect and holy and good. And our sins deserve judgment. Romans says they deserve death. And so John gives this image of a winnowing fork at a barn at the end of harvest. We are not harvesters, so we got to explain this one a little bit. They would grab a winnowing fork, which is like a huge pitchfork, and they would take the wheat and throw it up in the air in a barn. Another guy, or maybe a lot of guys, would be waving like a fan to create an artificial wind to blow through the barn. And as you threw the wheat in the air, the kernel, the heavy parts would fall back to the ground and not get blown by the wind. But the chaff, all the stuff around the wheat and all the extra plant material would get blown out the back of the barn and eventually burned into a fire because it had no use. In this life, it's confusing who's a Christian, who's not a Christian, all these sorts of things. One day it won't be very confusing. Jesus is the one who will use the winnowing fork and separate it out. He's the savior of the world and he'll also be the judge. And that's why John the Baptist's message is intense and it's important and people are compelled and even just so convicted. They're like, I wanna get baptized today. And then what shall I do? They just open their heart and surrender saying, whatever comes next, I'm in. I don't wanna miss out on the savior because I see my great need 
for him. Our sins are no light matter before God, but Jesus's heart and Jesus's mission is to save us, to crush the snake and take us home. And we know Jesus is good and wants this for our life because he gives his own life on the cross for us. It's his blood that pays for our sins. It's he who tastes the fire for us in order to redeem us from the inside out. And now the moment finally arrives. John the Baptist meets adult Jesus. Look at verse 21. Jesus shows up as expected, but then does an unexpected thing. Now, when all the people were baptized, I don't know how many, this is like thousands of people have been baptized. They're hanging out. Everyone's in expectation. What happens next? And finally, Jesus shows up. And when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, Jesus shows up to the party that's been pointing at him, maybe for years, and God himself, fully man, fully God, a person without sin at all, gets baptized. In Matthew 3, the parallel account to this captures John the Baptist's confusion. It says, then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. He didn't get like talked into it. He went to do the baptism. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you. Jesus, come on, man. It's my turn. Dunk me. And he said, why are you coming to me? And Jesus said, it should be done, for we must, all, must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. Jesus' baptism isn't for repentance. He has no sins to repent of. Jesus' baptism isn't for the forgiveness of his sins, looking forward to salvation. He is that salvation. But Jesus corrects John the Baptist that he must be baptized because God instructs baptism. That this is a new command from God. It's breaking with tradition and saying, we are the people of baptism now. And Jesus sets this pattern for us and why we practice something called believer's baptism here, that we baptize people after they believe in Jesus. And just as John the Baptist established, just as Jesus affirmed, just as was practiced and is encouraged by command, that Jesus does this to fulfill all righteousness. That when we follow Jesus, we even follow him in the ways that he walked. And then something even stranger happens. Look at verse 22. They're praying in this baptism and the heavens were open and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. God himself as a Holy Spirit as a dove rolls out of heaven and descends on Jesus. If people had any doubt if Jesus was that dude, that would be enough. The crowds would have a moment of like, oh, I get why John the Baptist was pointing to this guy. We saw God as a dove land on this Jesus. And then a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And this is why we believe and practice that God is a trinity. Because we see all three persons of God working together right here in our salvation. The Holy Spirit is a dove coming down. The voice of God himself, what would that sound like? The thunder of heaven 
speaking these lovely words of encouragement to his own son, affirming who Jesus is to all and encouraging him. Man, if Jesus needs encouragement, how much do we need encouragement? Jesus graciously accepts it. Life is hard in a broken world. And we see God encouraging his son with these words. Some of us have been waiting our entire life to hear these words that you are loved and your mother or father is well pleased with you. And if you follow Christ, I got great news for you today. If you follow Christ and you are in Christ, that means you're one with Christ So those words are now for you, that God loves you and that God is pleased with you. Not on the basis of what you've done, but on the perfect life of his son, death on the cross and resurrection. Now you have the infinite approval of God. Yeah, we got to repent of sins as they come up for sure. But that doesn't change your status as a beloved son and daughter of God now. You don't have to be shook by every sin, but rather repent as John the Baptist says and look forward to following Christ as a beloved person, someone with whom God is well pleased. That's true for you. Let it heal back down through your story in every way. You are loved, you are free, and you are valued. And in this baptism moment, John the Baptist has been pointing to Jesus his whole life. And this is God joining the party saying, yes, this is it. All the Old Testament's been building to it. And this is the deal right here in the Jordan River. This is what matters most. In a world where everything seems important and every century has its struggles, Jesus is important today as he was then. He's still the main event. He's still the biggest thing that will ever be. And so church, I want to give us three encouragements. There's a lot going on in a passage. I want to give us three clear encouragements of what do we do with all this. And the first is verse eight. It says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Remember, bearing spiritual fruit is growing in character, loving growing in love for God, growing in worship from God, growing in obeying God's word, loving Jesus. And that's to be the norm of the Christian life. That's not like for some super Christians over here or super Christian like Caesar or something like that. Or that's not, it's for everybody. And spiritual fruit isn't the cause of our salvation, but it's the evidence. So Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus, we must heed his words to continue to bear fruit by keeping with repentance. Repentance is not a one-time thing. Yes, we repent of sin and put our faith in Christ, but that is the way of following Christ. It's the way of repentance. You will never be nearer to Christ than when you are freshly repenting of sin. His grace will be new and real. As we repent of deeper things, heart idol things, suddenly the grace will deepen and its power will strengthen in your love for Jesus that he even loves you down to there, that he even loves you down to your control issues, to your issues with comfort, to your issues with approval or power, whatever it is, that Jesus loves that person too will change you from the inside out. So church, let us bear fruit in keeping with repentance and let our affection for Jesus grow deeper. Second thing, 
If you're not a Christian, or maybe the sermon today is kind of rocking you because honestly, you look around, you go, man, I might not have any of that spiritual fruit in my life. I don't wake up and want to serve Jesus. I'm not pumped to praise him. Maybe this tree's a little dead. And maybe as you think through this and we're talking about hell and all these things today, I just want to encourage you, don't delay at all. Just like John the Baptist, repent and believe in Jesus. Listen to John the Baptist, that our sins are against God. They will be judged. However, Jesus is real. There's evidence of his historical life in all these characters. The Bible is beautiful. You can follow Jesus and be forgiven today and start a new life with God. I urge you to repent and believe and be transformed that your life would point to Jesus instead of anything else. That's a good way to know, Farrakh. Am I a Christian or not? I know it's tough in the South. Does your life point to Jesus? Would someone say, man, your life is kind of all about Jesus. He comes first. And if he doesn't, that's a good sign that maybe you haven't believed. But that can change today. Talk with the person next to you. Come talk with me. And I'd love to have you following Jesus and answer your questions. Last, church, consider baptism. And just plainly, have you been baptized? Have you followed Jesus in baptism? Do you need to consider being baptized once more as you've made an adult decision to follow Jesus? Baptism isn't something of embarrassment, but instead it's for the humble heart that says, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I want to follow him in all things. In my story, around 10 My parents were getting a divorce. We went to a Pentecostal church plant because my dad was trying to save the marriage. I'm so thankful my dad did. It was the first time I heard the word of God and saw people taking the Bible seriously, so people worshiping. I got excited and got baptized. I didn't know what it mean, but I definitely didn't want to go to hell. And as I matured and I realized I didn't really believe and my life showed it for the next 10 years of my life, and I did come to Christ, eventually I wanted to be baptized. I'd read the Bible, and I said, huh, just like these people, just like my Savior, I too want to go underneath the water, come out of the water proclaiming there's one Lord in my life, and do it with great joy. And I ask you to consider the same, church fam. We will have baptisms in April when it's a little warmer outside. We don't need to do a polar plunge too. Please see me, we'll do a little class about it and we'll talk through all the ins and outs. Doesn't mean you have to be baptized, but I hope you consider it deeply. Church, Jesus saves no one else. Let us trust Jesus with all of our hearts and point to him with every single part of our life.